And we're back. We're back. So this is episode two of our coverage of The Keepers. It's going to cover uh, episodes four, five, six, and seven. Yeah. Four episodes today, guys. It's oh. not going to be that long, we promise. <laughs> if you haven't listened to episode one, go back and listen to that first, or none of this is going to make any sense. Yeah, because we cover episodes one, two, and three of The Keepers. Exactly. Before we start, I have to just say... Gemma's hair is all over the place in this thing. I don't, she can do no wrong in my eyes. I agree. It's just that, like, <laughs> nothing hits home more that this documentary was made over a series of years yes. than Gemma's hair. Like, you can just follow it with Gemma's hairstyle. <laughs> yeah, like, where are they? What year is this? Exactly. What? One other thing I learned the director of the documentary, his aunt went to Bishop Keogh and was um, in school with Jane Doe, with, with uh, Jean. Jean, yeah. Yeah. Ryan White. Ryan White, yes. Great job on this, by the way, Ryan, in case no one has told you that, this critically acclaimed (laughs) documentary. Great job from Love, Patrick, and Jillian. (laughs) All right, so episode four. Bring us up to speed, Jillian Pensavalli. Um, Okay, so there's a caretaker who buried all of Maskell's sex papers in a cemetery, because that's not weird at all. And then he called the detective that we know as Deep Throat, because why would we know him as anything else? (laughs) But it was like the most dramatic, like, Meet me at midnight. Come alone. Like, I was like, guys, settle down. You guys. Also, don't, because it's sex papers that a priest buried who may or may not, who definitely has something to do with murdering a nun. He probably didn't actually do it, but he right. knows. And so the first thing we see is, like, this big meeting at Jean's house where everyone's getting to interview Deep Throat. So I've got some questions. Number one, that horror i was watching it by myself with the lights off why (laughs) (laughs) why that whole voice distortion thing i know it brought me back to being like a 10 year old watching unsolved mysteries (gasps) and when they would do the voice i would have to i would run screaming into my lesbian mother's room somehow it got in the media that that we were investigating this thing and uh, a lot of girls started calling me and talking to me I think what's even scarier is the fact that this man needs to disguise his face and voice because right. people might murder him for what he knows about a murder about a nun. So what do we learn at this meeting with Deep Throat? We learn so much. We learn that he, when he was a Baltimore detective, he personally interviewed over 100 women who also have claims very similar to our best friends, Jean and Teresa, mm-hmm. who we love. And he also says he personally saw photographs of young girls who were naked in the sex papers. That came from the doctor, doctor, that came from Father Maskell's collection. Right. Yeah. And probably also that gynecologist where all the parents were like, yeah, sure, my, my kid can totally go to a gynecologist on the word of a priest. That With makes you. total sense. Stay in the room, though. All right, so after this meeting, the next person we meet is who? Sharon May. I have a lot of things to say about Miss Sharon May. What kind of person do you think she is? She's a garbage person. <laughs> Can I just say is this, something? Am I too quick to judge? <laughs> but she was like the head of the sex crimes unit. I, I think her, my whole thing with Sharon where it's like, Sharon, you could be a hero here. So yeah. the thing about Sharon, the thing that What's her, like, me, her biggest memory of, of that time? Oh, her red convertible, her brand new red convertible. <laughs> so we went to the cemetery And as it turned out, it was a bright, sunny day, and I had recently bought a red convertible, so I rode there with the top down, you know, because this is just, I mean, we were going to find such great evidence, okay? So I was pumped up for that. That's what she remembers about the cemetery, driving up to the cemetery in her brand new red convertible. And Ryan White is like, so what about the naked girls in the sex papers? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. We've heard of one source who says that they saw pornographic material of teenage girls in there, you're saying no. 
I don't have any recollection that we found pornographic material. Maybe we did. I just don't remember that. She can't recall, not to her recollection. And then she does this thing where it's like, well, you know, you can't just make a case where there isn't one, everybody. Like, kind of condescending, which may be true. I'm not a lawyer. And it's like, if you see that there's a bunch of buried sex papers, which is like a pedophile's trophy room in the dirt in a graveyard, find the case, Sharon. Like, be the hero. So what her actual quote was that she said it's th- she didn't disbelieve that because they come right out and ask her, like, do you think that he like sexually abuses women? And she said, I didn't disbelieve the victims, but I just didn't have enough to go forward. I still think that would just stay with me forever going to a cemetery in the middle of the night and seeing like files. Well, somebody's priest, lying. I mean, like, like that's what? what it comes down to. Either yeah. she's lying or Deep Throat is lying. Yeah. Just before we get away from Sharon May, can we just talk about, like, how she's just had it? Like, she gets super sassy in the end of her interview. Yeah, because they were really pushing her. And she was just like, um, I'm not going to be intimidated by you. And I wasn't intimidated by the priest back in the day. So, like, I'm done. I was not one to be intimidated. Okay. If an allegation is made, the investigation was done. I never experienced any pressure from the Catholic Church not to investigate. I wasn't and still am not Catholic, so I didn't have any issues that, you know, challenged my faith or upset my idea of right and wrong. No, you know, no. The allegation was made. I looked at it. So the next big douchey character is Dr. Richter, the gynecologist. Right. And uh, so like they, they, ha- they have, they, they show like the live at five news team, like trying to like break down his front door. And he's like, I don't know. I'm an old man. And a piece of garbage. Like you can also say that. That's okay. <laughs> Dr. Richter denies the charges. I'm totally innocent of anything that they're accusing me of. That's it. Did you know Father Maskell? 25 years ago, that's all. Yeah, he's just denying everything. He's denying the abuse, but, like, he's quoted in the paper being like, well, yeah, it's the only time a priest could get close to girls like that. And it's like, so you're making, like, what? Like, this is not funny. This is the mindset of these people where it's just very, like, well, the priest called for it, so what am I supposed to do? You're a doctor. Uh You have a moral and scientific responsibility to not be a garbage person, and you failed. (laughs) It's a low bar, Dr. Richter. Moving on. Low bar. Moving um, on. The next big, like, tent pole of the episode is the tri- like the trial starts. Right. So Take it, it away. So it's Jane Doe, who's uh-huh. Jean, and Jane Rowe, who's Teresa. Did it strike you in the documentary? Because we, we know them both intimately as, like, oh, yeah. people watching the documentary. And Teresa's like, I still don't know who Jane Doe is. Like, it dawns on me that, like, these two women are coming out for the first time for this documentary. Yes. Like, they're announcing themselves to the world for that. So Jane Doe and Jane Rowe went to high school together, or at least to the same high school. Right. And they don't. They don't know each other. It's, it's, it was it was sort of like a mind f. For yeah, me. for them to go through a trial and still not know each right. other was and baffling. Jane, so uh, Jean makes the point that like she didn't ever want to meet Jane Roe because she didn't want. She's like things. My memories were still coming back to me, and I didn't want to be influenced by anybody else. Yeah, which is why she also didn't join the awesome Facebook group that Gemma and Abby created. But yeah. Teresa, they had very different situations. Teresa was part of the group. She saw, she found a lot of comfort in it and helped other people come forward. And Jean was 
um, was still too scared of what she would learn and discover about herself that she right. stayed away. So these two women, but they still found the strength differently, which I think is awesome. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so we see them, we hear heartbreaking interviews about the depositions. So basically, like, these women as the 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 plaintiffs in the lawsuit have opened themselves up to being deposed by the opposing counsel. Listen to me. It's like I watched The Good Wife or Wait, something. Wait, didn't you just say you weren't a lawyer, Patrick? <laughs> and so, like, of course, they're just like, you know, to, to quote my friend Jillian Pazzavalli, garbage people, just like, you know, raking these women over the coals. The depositions were, I'm sure, what people would say necessary but the experience that i had in these depositions by these lawyers was devastating they were questions designed to beat me down what i did with my high school boyfriend whether i was sexually active it's very very hard for an abuse victim to go through those kind of questions and, like, you hear Jean talking about how, like, her husband could be there, but he couldn't say anything. He had to sit behind her. Yeah. Like, he couldn't even – they couldn't even have the comfort of eye contact totally. or any kind of loving face. And he opened face. his mouth, he was going to get thrown out. You know what? I know. Ugh. But I love – I also – again, with these families, Teresa's brothers would, like, walk on either side of her so that she felt safe in the yeah. courtroom. Like, I can't stand it. They're so – they're such good people. Well, you talk – because you talked about it passionately before we started about, like, the whole – how they wanted to look at the judge – Oh, this is one of my favorite. I mean, I like punched my couch and like stood up and screamed. (laughs) So they were all the whole point of this deposition was to break these women down. That was the strategy of the opposing counsel. These women are weak. They're lying or whatever they thought, whatever their motivation was. They were just going to make them relive the worst things that ever happened to them, arguably anybody. And they wanted to break them down. And eventually they both, again, not even knowing each other, which is so amazing, they both came to the conclusion of, you know what? Ask me your goddamn questions. Well, what happened I'm was – I'm going to look you right in the eye. So the lawyer – so the, they had decided they were going to look at the judge, and one of the lawyers requested that they look at the lawyer. So they had to. Yeah. And so then Gene says – It felt as if at some point that terrible terror of doing this s- turned into something else. I just turned, I stared him right in the eyes. It was this feeling of, go ahead, ask me your questions. How about the nonsense about Maskell just like being able to just disappear? Yeah, they would just move him around, send him to Ireland. Yeah, so and so he couldn't be deposed. Right. Like that was, they couldn't find him. Super even, convenient. Even Sharon May's like. And remember too, the Catholic Church isn't stupid. They had a lot of things that they could do. They could move them. They could give them little sabbaticals. Maskell was, I guess, the best word is elusive. Yeah, I want to say one more thing because, unfortunately, we have some more garbage issues to discuss in this episode and the rest of the series. But I just want to say one more thing about Teresa, who became a lawyer at 49 years old. With, like, 600 kids and, like... yeah, her Although ha- that gorgeous house with all the windows. Yeah, and her like awesome again another awesome supportive family member. Her husband like built her this office, and sometimes she would sleep in there. She had finals. <laughs> I was like Teresa. It was very impressive for someone to take courses that hard while she was raising four kids, cooking them dinner, tucking them in at night. In your middle or late forties, that's not an easy thing to do. I became a lawyer 
when I was 49. <laughs> and then, of course, it just helped her have just a better knowledge of her case and what was going on and what she can and can't do. She's just like, yeah, oh. she's amazing. Oh. So back to the garbage. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. Let's talk about like the two Johns Hopkins priests. Uh, so even though these women were fantastic and so strong in the trial, here's what they had to deal with. Yeah. A bunch of people basically telling them that they're lying and that what they remember is not real. Because you had two pre- – you had the one priest for the prosecution who was, like, the good guy who was, like, yeah, like, you know, recalled memory is, like, a real thing. Mm-hmm. And then you had, like, the opposing guy who everybody, like, weirdly revered him. He's still a teacher. I know. He's still at Johns Hopkins. And he would say ridiculous things, like, in, in talking about recalled memory. Like, you know, he said that somebody asked him once, like – could it never possibly be a thing? He says... Somebody's always saying, well, yeah, you haven't seen everybody. And I say, no, I haven't seen everybody. But then again, I haven't been to the upper tributaries of the Amazon where there may be a unicorn, after all. <laughs> uh, there may be one out there. In the 80s, this was an issue that was coming up a lot, this idea of repressed memory and recalled memory. And even, remember Queen Beverly Wallace, the yeah, lawyer? of course. Even she is like... All right, you guys, I'll give it to you. Like, some people did abuse that. There were psychologists and therapists who sort of planted these stories or whatever. So even she's like, okay, fair. Like, sometimes people abuse that. But then the courts went the complete other opposite direction. It was just like, we don't believe any of it ever. Yeah. Which is just ridiculous. And so ultimately, that's what happens to Teresa and Jean. Yeah, because they needed that. They needed the judge to believe them what they were called memory because of a little thing called the statute of limitations. Which is just something like three years. Yeah. You have three years to, to, to sue somebody for sexually violating you. Right. And so the and so it didn't work. It got thrown out, and they and that was it. Like Jean has this heartbreaking monologue about like she put she put her whole life on the line. She put her whole family on the line. Her faith in the church, and she did it to like come forward and do the right thing. And it was all for nothing. Now I've lost everything. I lost my faith. I lost a sense of where I belonged, and my family. It was like they were excommunicated. You know, as if it were like someone cut a cord. I felt that the church was saying that I should never have opened my damn mouth, that I was supposed to keep the secret, that I was supposed to stay silent. And that's what I did until now, 20 some years later. So the second to last garbage person we have to talk about is, say it with me, James, James Skinnell. <laughs> and he's not going anywhere, so don't get don't get too annoyed just I know, yet. I know. He's here to stay, unfortunately. Marge Simpson groan. <laughs> I had such a strong reaction to I hate that man so much. Somewhere Gemma's like, raise a glass. Yeah. Me too. Hate him. Hate him. For anybody who doesn't remember, Skinnell is, was the guy who was the first officer on the scene. He was the one that I lovingly said in the first episode was as drunk as I would like to be in the middle of the day. <laughs> yes. Um, like looks I like hate this man and we'll get to why in a little bit. Yeah. And he's also here. He's like, I don't believe and recall memory. Give me facts. When the rumors started circulating in the 1990s about the sexual abuse at Keogh, what was your personal reaction to that? I find it hard to believe. In our society, they go for the deep pockets. And once you open the door, a flood could come in. I would say, prove it to me. I would recall memory with facts. And I was like, um, I don't know, stupid white guy who doesn't look like Robert Redford, by the way. By Jenna. the way. 
a hundred women with the same story about the same person isn't that's not evidence that's not evidence enough yeah and in the same breath he's like father maskell was basically part of the police force he would go on ride-alongs and i'm like you don't even hear yourself right you are a psychopath and i hate you Ryan White loves his cliffhangers, right? <laughs> yes, Ryan White. As terrifying as they are, like this one, which is all about Brother Bob. Brother Bob is like the only person Gene really has no memory about other than what happened. No yeah. face, no name. It's terrifying. And he was also like more violent and like just worse than Maskell to the point where Maskell was like, hey man. <laughs> like Maskell had to rein him in and you know you have Maskell, to be. Maskell like legit has devil horns and he's like, hey, hey dude. Hey, hey man. Whoa. And you're like, what is happening? Like, yeah. just when you think it can't get any worse, there's this, like, boogeyman in the closet monster under the bed, Brother Bob. And Gene, of course, is like, I don't want to go anywhere near that memory because yeah. the woman's been through enough and is a superhero, so whatever. He straight up tells Gene, he's basically like, hey, so I killed Sister Kathy. Be quiet about it. And then Maskell comes in. is like, did you take care of it? And he goes, yeah, no one's saying anything. Like, she's not going to say anything. And you're like... I don't think I get we're only episode four. <laughs> I hate everyone so much. And then it's like, who's brother Bob? So, okay, episode five. Can you give us your title, please? Um, the nun in the attic that will haunt me for the rest of my days. <laughs> is that not what it's called on Netflix? <laughs> that image. It, it really is terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah, and we'll get to exactly what that is in a minute. But before we do that, Nancy Drew, a.k.a. Lil Hughes, has a story for us. She's amazing. She tracks down Maskell. He's being treated for dementia. It's like, just leave him on the side of the road, honestly. <laughs> Don't, like, treat him for dementia. Totally. And, of course, dementia. Oh, he doesn't remember anything. How convenient. <laughs> Garbage. But she, she, like, she literally, like, legit, she, like, finds out that he's, like, in some home. Mm-hmm. And she calls and pretends that she's, like, scouting it for her father or something. Yeah. She, like, sneaks in. Definitely does a barrel roll. Definitely is just like kicking the door in. (laughs) Yeah, she's definitely. Yeah, exactly. And then she finds his room, somehow breaks away from like the tour guide and then confronts him. So I get right up to his face and put my hands on his arms and everything. And I said, Father Maskell, it's Lil Hughes. Do you remember me? I used to work with you at Archbishop Keogh. I probably would have had some things to say to him. I would have told him exactly what he had done to me. But there was no one home. No one. There was nothing in his eyes at all. And of course, who's the bigger person? Lil. Yeah. She's like, I'm not going to say anything. It's going to fall on deaf ears. Like, whatever. I'm living my life. I'm Lil Hughes. I'm amazing. Don't you dare (laughs) try to pull any shit because you're not going to be able to. But then she ends with, like, the best line ever. His life was ending in his early 60s, which is premature and well-deserved. Okay, this this episode, I love it so much. And this is this is my favorite episode of the whole series. Really? Because it is super conspiracy theory. Oh yeah. And all I have to say is like, give me your drag queens, give me your pregnant <laughs> nuns, give me your gay uncles. They're I all the same person. All of them. <laughs> I want every conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. I want to know about every bar fight that led to the murder. Yeah. Give me it. I'm just I'm soaking up this episode. Yeah. The first theory, Gemma gets a phone call. 
Yeah. Gemma gets two phone calls and they both say, I think my uncle killed Sister Kathy. So you can imagine, I'm sure she's like, Abby, we got another niece who thinks their <laughs> uncle killed Sister Kathy. Like what kind of, to get two phone calls like that is crazy. But yeah. we'll go one phone call at a time. Yeah. The first phone call we get is from Debbie Yoon concerning her uncle Edgar, who was totally a fox back in the day. I know. Which like, it's so unfortunate. And then we meet Debbie's aunt, his wife. She only wants to go by the name Margaret. So we can add her to the list of people who are terrified for their lives. No, we can't hear their voices, can't see their faces or know their real names. Yeah, exactly. That's not a coincidence. Sharon may look into it. (laughs) So we, we learn that she married Edgar at 16. Yeah, that's young. Even for back in the day when people married young, right? That is still young. Margaret, play the field a little bit, sweetie. Well, we met in probably junior year of uh, high school. I just immediately was drawn to him. He was very kind to me. He was good looking, um, very charming. I guess it was almost like love at first sight. And then also Edgar's own sister was like, you you a danger girl. (laughs) Don't marry this guy. And Margaret, bless her heart, like they, like my Southern friends say, she's just like, I'll fix him. Uh-huh. Never. Anyone listening, it never works. You can never fix anybody. It's especially true. Especially if their name is Edgar Davidson. <laughs> we'll get to why in a moment. So the big, the big news is, like, she finds out that he's, like, lying in, on the bills and he's, like, racked up all this debt. She tries to leave him. What does he do? Threatens to kill her. <laughs> Which is just, oh, okay. Yeah. And he started choking me. And he said, do you realize that I could kill you right now and tell myself that somebody else did this and believe it? And then she's going to go anyway, but she finds out that she's pregnant. pregnant. Yeah. Isn't that always the way? Always. So she says, but like, I just love that. Like, you can just tell from her interview that like, she stays for a while, but, like, she is just humoring him. Like, she's just tolerating this man. Yeah, and also just remembering everything he says, which <laughs> right. is smart, because now we have a lot of information. Right. Tell us about November 7th, which is a very <laughs> important date. So Hot Eddie comes home from work. Like, it's 5 o'clock or something, and he comes home, like, drenched in blood. Like, no big deal. I was like, what happened? Ed says, oh, nothing. He says... My boss wouldn't give me my paycheck, and I know how bad we need it. He said, so I got in a fight with him, and he uh, punched me in the nose. All right, guy. Exactly. Did you guys feel the eye roll? I was just like, <laughs> please. You got a fight with your boss right. that ends up with you covered in blood? Covered give in blood. me a break. Right. And she also, she remembers this day, and this is super important. From, from somebody who, like, listens to a ton of true crime podcasts, like, you have to be able to place the, you know, m- like, why you remember a certain day. It's because that same day she got a call from the hospital that one of the twins she had given birth to recently, who had been born, like, super premature, was now at, like, the right weight of five pounds and she could come and pick him up. So she's able to, like, place that memory. Yeah, because he walked through the door and she was probably like, oh, my God, you're home early. We can go pick up. Wait, what? Yeah, exactly. Why are you covered in blood? Oh, a fight with your boss? Like, great. So then whenever it is later, she is sitting with Hot Eddie and he's, you know, 25 beers in. Yeah. And, and like, a news report comes on about Sister Kathy and how she's missing and what, what happened. And that's only a few days after November 7th. Now it's all over the news. And he's like, ha. And his reaction was rocking back in the chair and getting a smirk and kind of laughing. He said, by the time they find her body, it's going to be winter time. She's going to be buried under the snow. And Maggie's like, what? (laughs) 
hmm, I wonder if this is related to the bloody shirt. Right. Interesting. Let she me... happened to go missing on the same day that you came home soaked in blood. Yeah, let me protect my five-pound baby, please, because you're a right. nightmare. And he changed his tires, weirdly. Like, why are you all... Like, there's just so many right. facts changed where you're like... tires. And also, like, the big thing that sort of is like a thread through the rest of the film is... The necklace. <laughs> Capital letters bolded, underlined in every color. The necklace. Did you die when you saw the necklace? I lost my mind. I did die. Yeah, I did. I did. Because I knew right away. Now, if you remember back to episode one, Kathy had gone out that night to buy an engagement gift. She said she was going to go and buy this engagement present. When they searched the car, the engagement present was not there and has never been found. So this necklace that we see that Ed, that Hot Eddie is giving Catherine. For Christmas. For Christmas is... Like a wedding bell necklace that is not her... It's like a birthstone necklace that is not her birthstone. It's a green birthstone. I felt like he didn't buy that for me. I felt like it was for somebody else and it was given to me. And she's like, slow down, Hot Eddie. What is this gift? We've been married for an excruciating several (laughs) few years. And interestingly enough, the present that Sister Kathy went to buy was not in her car. And was never recovered. Until Maggie got it for Christmas. (laughs) One one last note on hot fast Eddie. Fast, he was cruising girls at the local high school who happened the high school that happened to be like twenty feet away from where Sister <laughs> Kathy lived. Right, just a note, and Maggie was like, "Eddie, please, <laughs> I'm doing my best to put up with all your nonsense. You have to now add cruising high school girls to the list. God, Maggie, run, run as far as you run, can. Run, girl. I called the police about that, which eventually did lead to Ed's arrest. In November of 71. Um, okay. Oh, my God. This is my favorite. This is my favorite. This is my favorite. <laughs> Billy Schmidt is your favorite. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm obsessed with Billy Schmidt. I'm just obsessed with this story. Okay. Tell me why. Walk me through it. I mean, because it starts with, like, a fun closeted gay boy and ends with a car chase with, a like, a guy named Skippy in drag playing a pregnant nun with a mustache and like a nun costume in somebody's attic. Like this is the most amazing. It's insane. Turn of events. It's quite, yeah, I was like, I was not expecting there to be a a gay pregnant nun in this story. (laughs) I was not. Okay. So this is like the second niece call. Yes. To Gemma. Like we got a, my uncle, my uncle definitely did it. Right. Her name is Sharon. Sharon Schmidt. Tell us about Sharon. Sharon remembers, Sharon takes a walk down memory lane with us and Gemma and remembers this fight that her parents had where her dad just like suddenly one day became an alcoholic. Like, No, suddenly. let's be clear. Her dad is not Billy. Billy is her dad's brother. Yes. Her dad's name is Ronnie. Yeah. We will get back to him in a moment. We will. He has a lot in common with Eddie. <laughs> How fun. So he was not a drinker. He was never a drinker. Poor guy. But one day he was. <laughs> And they were having this like drunk fight in the kitchen. And he was like, you know why I drink? Because we killed that nun and buried her behind our store. <laughs> Nothing says we killed that nun like saying we killed that nun. Yeah. And you know where she was found? Behind their store. <laughs> I mean, my right. God. So here's the thing. The niece, her name is Sharon. Her mother is Barbara. Barbara's best friend was this, like, queenie little twink named Billy. Back then, he was the best friend I ever had. He was like a knight in shining armor for me. Kind, gentle soul, but strange. He had very weird ways. After I had my daughter, he always came home for lunch, and he would say, come on, girl, 
let's get back in shape. And we'd go in the living room and he'd turn on the stereo and we'd do the twist for a half an hour. I married his brother, Ronald Francis Schmidt. I think that we understand that she knew Twink Billy first. <laughs> And then, like, met Twink Billy's brother. Yeah, and they were both, she describes it as they were kind of both black sheeps. Like, Barbara was just basically who I'm going to be, just surrounded by dogs and wine exactly. when I get older. <laughs> and Billy was a black sheep because he was a gay guy in 1950, in the late 50s. Can you tell the people where Twink Billy lived? Ten feet away from Kathy. So this is where Sister Kathy lived, and Michael Bill was right here. Jeez. It's like about ten steps to my uncle's apartment. When he lived in this complex. I got chills again. I, I got chills again. I know. He lived in the downstairs apartment. Okay, this is this gets super confusing and there's so many hot guys involved. Can we let's let's do the bullet points of like how is it possible that Billy is the killer? Yeah. We'll go Schmidt by Schmidt. <laughs> okay. Yes. So Ron Schmidt, who we know is Sharon's dad and he's the drinker. He like and wasn't a Billy's drinker. Brother. Yeah. He wasn't the drinker and then now he is the drinker. Yeah. Here here's why he might be involved or the Schmidts <laughs> might be involved. Just like Eddie came home one night covered in blood. Yeah. Just like Eddie said he'd been in a fight. Right. This I think his was a bar fight, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then he started drinking immediately after this. This is all suspicious behavior. <laughs> no? Yeah. Right. All right. Let's talk Twink Billy. Twink Billy. So he lived, like you said, downstairs from sister Kathy which is just amazing to me right becomes obsessed with the case when she goes missing Mm -hmm. and then he gets so obsessed that he can't live alone anymore like where the scene of the crime was arguably because then there's an interview with another Schmidt and then there's like footage of it and he's like oh yeah no we were at sister Kathy's and then um we I they asked me to help them put this like rolled up rug in the back of the van and then they were like if you tell anyone we'll kill you right okay That's great like another of Twink Billy's like nephews That's Brian Schmidt another brother These yeah Schmidt's I can't but even can we track. just get to the point where Billy lives in a house yeah so Billy is losing it of course because he probably maybe saw a murderer was involved and moves home and then he starts talking about the nun in the attic and barbara his mother with all the dogs future me (laughs) is just like sweetheart there's no nun in the attic and he's like yes there is she's gonna get me and she's like no i know this is the worst story mary take it down a notch i know this is the worst story ever like we all have nightmares but i assure you there's not a nun in the attic sweetheart so then barbara's like i'm gonna get to the end like i'm gonna put a stop to this i'll just go up to the attic (laughs) And I went up there and I go, what woman are you talking about? He goes, don't you see her? And she sees, again, what will haunt me for the rest of I my know. days, which is like not real. It's just like what the documentary made. Yeah. yeah. But there's a nun in the attic. It's a mannequin yeah. dressed as a nun. In a nun's habit. And it was on a, a mannequin. And it was blue with a white band. It was a nun's habit. He'd say she was after him. She was chasing him. She would talk to him. Why? <laughs> like, just quickly, we have to breeze over Twink Billy's boyfriend, Skippy. Skippy, no last name. Right. Just Skippy. I don't know. Can't but, like, my favorite thing about them is that, like, and this was so, like, shocking to people, they would, like, go out on the town, like, in drag as nuns. One of them pregnant. Skippy. Skippy yeah. was the pregnant one. Yeah. And Barbara was like, they just love to, like, antagonize the church. And I'm like, because they were gay and the church told them they were going to burn in hell for it. And Barbara just has, like, the best Skippy story ever. According to Barbara, <laughs> she was almost run off the road. Was this blue older station wagon with this nun driving it, only it wasn't a nun at all. 
it was somebody with a big old mustache grinning from ear to ear at me. So when that light turned green, I took off. I went through red lights and everything. When I got down to Ritchie Highway and Mountain Road where they come together, a car was right on my bumper. So I took off in front of traffic and that person in that station wagon got stuck. And I was hysterical. I pulled into my driveway, ran into my house, my babysitter was in there, and I started screaming, call the police. And to this day, I believe it was Skippy. It's like Barbara. As much as I relate to you, because I will be you surrounded by dogs one day. He's just like on his way to a drag ball, and he had to get there fast. Yeah. But also, like, why are you creepily staring at Barbara Schmidt? Like, what did she ever do? That's true. Um... And then Twink Billy kills himself. I know. It's heartbreaking. He had mental issues because he was probably involved in a murder. Or the other thing is like, and just to get serious for one second, like he was also like a young gay man living in Maryland in the 60s. Like it probably wasn't going great for him. No. That's why he, I mean, to be considered the black sheep of the family, like you're not a black sheep if you're gay, everybody get over (laughs) it. God. 1969 was also the Stonewall Riots. Google it. Okay. (laughs) Two final things. I just want to say Gene and Mike forever. I'm yeah. going to put it on a bunch of Forever, things. Yeah. So we learn that Mike passed away and Gene says it in this beautiful way that he had to swallow so much anger. So he had cancer of the esophagus. My husband, Mike, swallowed a lot of anger. There was a lot of anger that he wanted to express. In those 21 hours of depositions, it was with him sitting there. He could not open his mouth or he would have to leave the room. That's swallowing an awful lot of what he was hearing and what they were saying to me. Um, Being in a courtroom and seeing me go through that, not being able to be up there with me. So he swallowed it and he swallowed it and he ended up with esophageal cancer. It's like, you guys just let your anger out because yeah. you'll get cancer and die. But he, she, he was her rock. She loved him. Jean, girl, you are a rock. You got this. Oh, oh, my God. How does how does this episode end? With the creepiest. Oh, my God. This is so terrifying. Of- so we find out in, like, the last few minutes that, like, none of these people can be questioned because they're all dead except. Creepy Edgar. Crazy Edgar. Crazy Hot Eddie. Fast Eddie with the 15 beers. Guess what? He is a broken, broken man. <laughs> but He's not Hot Eddie anymore. We don't, all, all we know at this point is that like they're trailing him. Have you seen that Bigfoot video where they like that slow motion <laughs> exactly. like arms? And he just like, sort of looks over turns, his shoulder. That's what they're doing with Crazy Eddie. And at this point, all we know is that Eddie's crazy. And yeah. even Abby's like, um, I'm scared. <laughs> so like you see them trailing this old man and you see like you find out that it's Eddie and he doesn't see them. And then like the last shot of this episode is he turns around and like makes eye contact with the camera and, and, you're like, just like, ah! <laughs> and I, you just start screaming and turn every light in the house on and you're like he saw me he's going to get me episode 6 before we start can I say one thing from last episode that I loved yes Gemma and Abby using the coffee filters to make a map I love them <laughs> Okay. I went crazy with these little papers. Anyway. I just wanted to start with something amazing because we're going to focus a lot on Edgar Davidson, who can no longer be referred to as Hot Eddie. No, he is not Hot Eddie. No, no sympathy, weirdly. I, <laughs> he's like literally sitting like in a beach chair in his living room. Like he just doesn't know what the hell is happening. Okay. So top of the top of the episode, Margaret, his first wife, is back. And we get a story from her. One day in the... 90s. I got a knock on the door. It was Detective Tincher and Detective Marl. 
they brought a tape recorder and when they pressed play on the tape it was the jerry turner uh call-in radio show and i'm hearing a disguised voice and he's calling in to let jerry turner know that he knows who has sister says nick's rosary she's like i'm sorry what there was a whole black case and it had the name Sosnick on it and this is her rosary. That the rosary had, uh, had Sosnick on it? My case had Sosnick on it. Oh, the case did. That sounds exactly like my psycho <laughs> husband who came home. And then it's like all of the memories. Yeah. She's like, came home with a bloody shirt, lied about it, got new tires. This necklace makes zero sense. Like, it's all sort of yeah. coming out to her. So after, like, the, the intro with Margaret, we are, now we're, like, in an interview with Not Hot Eddie. Mm-hmm. Old man, Not Hot Eddie. And, like, he's, like, all of a sudden not terrifying at all because he's so old and he's weird. He's giving Skinnell a run for his money in the, like, walking corpse <laughs> department. <laughs> yeah, he, he sure is. So now, like, Ryan White is becoming more and more. He's like, guys, we've got one more episode. I'm getting to the bottom of this. Yeah, were, did you or did you not call the Jerry Turner show? And not No, ha- first he's like, did you do it? He's like, no, I had nothing to do with it. I don't know anything. But did you did you do it? Did you kill Sister Kathy? No. Do you have any information about her murder? No. And he's like, did you call the Turner show and say you knew everything? And he's he's like, like, yeah. <laughs> Was that you that called Jerry Turner? Mm-hmm. And Ryan's like, you understand why that is confusing to me? Do you get why? And he's like, no, no, no. I just, no, no, no. You guys misunderstand. I called the show and led my wife to believe I did it. Because I just wanted people to think I was involved. And I'm like, okay, two things. One, I'm gonna, why? I'm, gonna die. I'm not going to make it through this episode with you. Why? Like, even if that's true, that's psychotic. And two, it's not true. Like, why would you be like, you know, it'll be super fun. I'm going to make everyone think I was involved with killing a nun. And listen, Ryan White's got all the evidence. Then he's like, let's look at this photo of the car that proves that whoever drove Kathy's car that night mm-hmm. drove with two feet. And, and not hot Eddie's like uh-huh and he's like do you drive he's like do you drive with two feet he's like well I don't drive he's like right but back when you did drive do you do you did you drive with two feet he's like he's like yeah <laughs> <laughs> why like is that weird that also the person who was driving Kathy's car after she was murdered drove two feet like why that's weird I'm not making the connection I'm not I don't see I don't it. understand and then Ryan shows him a picture was like he- do you recognize this person uh-huh. like and he was just like yeah it's Kathy <laughs> and I feel like everyone behind the camera was just looking at each other like, do you f- believe this guy? I'm like, what? I had nothing to do with her disappearance. Her murder anyway. Can we talk about someone who's not garbage <laughs> yes, real quick? Please. Sister Kathy's sister, Marilyn. Uh, Marilyn. Breath of fresh air, Marilyn. I know, who, like, is now learning about this almost with us. I never came to peace. Mm-hmm. I shut up. Mm-hmm. But I never came to peace. Mm-hmm. You know, I shut up for the sake of my parents. And I always kept my mouth shut for the sake of my mother. But all these years, I wanted to know who killed my sister. It That's all crazy to me that, like, like I, I get that they were, like, trying to spare their parents. That, like, their parents didn't want them looking into it, so they didn't. But, like, to be a middle-aged woman and just now, like, learning about what really happened to your sister, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah, so when Marilyn's, Marilyn and Kathy's mom died, Marilyn, of course, is going to the house, going through all this stuff. And she's finding all these newspaper clippings. She says she had never even heard of Joe Maskell. Right. Until then. It's a lot to absorb because it's so... It's not what I have thought happened for 45 years. I didn't know the name Maskell until my mother died. So then she's just like, I'm going down to Baltimore. Like, 
obviously. And then, of course, we like meet her husband. Turns out it's her husband's birthstone, by the way. Oh, the necklace. necklace. And and it was for, to be clear, the necklace that Kathy was buying the night that she went missing was for her sister. Yeah. And they go into it and they're like, this is a total Kathy gift Mm because it was the wedding bells and also it had his stone. And she loved that Marilyn was marrying this man. They were very close. Like, it's Sister Kathy's necklace. Like, that's not even a question. Yeah. So, speaking of evidence, now we get into another non-garbage person, <laughs> Gary Childs. <gasps> Gary Childs. So, he's like like the first good cop we've seen in this whole crazy documentary. Yeah, I love him. And he insists, he was like, there, there would never be a cover-up. I can only tell you this. If there was any evidence that anybody was involved in this murder, Father Maskell or anybody else, and that evidence was developed by these investigators, there would be no cover-up. And he's not from that time. He's from now. He's, he's only been working on the case for a couple weeks. Yeah. Sorry to disappoint you, Gary. The evidence is gone. Yeah. Just gone. And all the creepy sex, like, all the creepy sex files are gone. Who the hell knows where they are? Yeah. Just nothing. So then, this one piece of evidence that is our, one of the most important pieces is this letter that Marilyn got from Kathy. After Kathy disappeared... I went back to um, school and I was at my dorm. I hadn't been back long, so I'm thinking it had to be about a week afterwards. I went in the evening, got my mail from my mailbox, and that's when the letter was there from Kathy. And her dad's like, don't open it and give it to this plainclothes detective. My father, he said, Marilyn, it was sent after Kathy went missing. It was not sent before. Stay there and don't move and don't open it because it's it could be evidence so please don't open it Marilyn you know you know you can imagine how much I really wanted to open that letter I remember expecting a policeman to come but it was somebody it must have been a plainclothes policeman because he didn't have a uniform on I called my father and I said oh whoever came to get that letter was not dressed as a policeman and he said it was probably detective Marilyn don't worry about that you you did the right thing by giving it to them I think that's weird. Why not call Marilyn, call the police yourself, and also open that letter? Right. Yeah. I mean, so obviously the letter goes missing. Ryan White is having none of this. And he's (laughs) just like... Ryan White, the director, yeah. Yeah, and he's like... Marilyn Sesnick, who's Kathy's sister, said that she received a letter after Kathy went missing. um, Couldn't have had a clue about what engagement present she had bought her, because Marilyn was the one who had just gotten engaged. My understanding from her... Is that that the letter is lost or has disappeared? And Gary's like, I, I know, know about the letter. letter. Uh, the letter should have been given to the county. The and then the off camera, there's some system. lawyer like, the city would have had possession of that, and we've never seen it. Yeah. So Gary does not ask. He doesn't worry about his mic. He just gets up. Can you give me one sec? Yeah. And he's like, I'm getting to the bottom of this right now. And you, he's got like hot mic. Like he like literally walks out, and you hear him talking. I gotta call the city and see if they still got evidence down there. So yeah. like, Gary, I love you. Thank you for being a non-garbage cop. And he's but he, he like goes and makes a call. He because he can't believe he's like, I'm sorry, what? I don't yeah. care how long this investigation has been going or how long this it's been a cold case. We have a letter. We'll find the letter. Where's the right. evidence? Yeah. And I'm like, Gary, we know, man. <laughs> it's episode six. Where have you been? We're like all over it. <laughs> okay. So now potential garbage person. Jerry Coob, what is happening? This was a revelation to me. The fact that, like, <laughs> Gary Coob, 
Gary Coop, who like <laughs> takes time out of his busy, easy rider watching schedule to perform mass tonight, Kathy goes missing. Gary Coop was like the lead suspect. Yeah, because they. This is like a. Sh- this is shocking. Yeah, to everyone but Tom Nugent, who's like, you guys. <laughs> Tom Nugent, the reporter, is like, don't believe a word he says. There are so many holes in his story of what went on at the carriage house that night. I'll tell you the truth. I would take everything he says with a gigantic boulder of salt. I do not believe the things that he told me. Well, they make the point that the only so sister Russell is dead. Nobody can find the friend that he saw Easy Rider with. Right. The only person from whom we've heard the story of where he was that night is him. Now, apparently, he has the ticket stubs to the movie, so he can prove that he was there. His friend's not dead. Well, right. So this is where it gets crazy. Yeah. That like no one can track down what's his name? Pete. Pete. Nobody knows where Pete is. Even Coob is like, well, if you can find him, is he still alive? We're like, it's not 1968 anymore. People can find people, Jerry Coob. Give me a yeah. break. So like, the whole idea is that, like, is Coob lying about where he was that night? Yeah, because Pete, according to Tom Nugent and all of his paperwork, I believe, I mean, he this guy did a lot of research, yeah. so he knows, he kind of knows Didn't what's up. Didn't file it real well, but yeah. It's an organized mess. He would, he'll tell you. It's an organized mess. He probably has a little thing like, God bless this mess. <laughs> So, according to Tom Nugent, Pete came, said they came from a different location. Right. And and Jerry Coob was like, oh, we saw Easy Rider, and then went back to this retreat house and came together. And Pete's side of the story is they were at the monastery in Beltsville. And right. Tom Nugent is like, alarm sirens. Like, this makes no <laughs> sense at all. So, no one can get him. And, of course, Marilyn, following in the footsteps of every single woman in this documentary, is like, fine, just let me do it. Give me the phone, guys. God, just let, I'll get him on the phone in five minutes. In five minutes, she gets him on the phone. <laughs> And she's like, hi, can I speak to Pete, please? Like, can we talk about where you were with Sister Kathy? Great. Mm-hmm. My name is Marilyn Sesnick. Um, I'm Kathy's sister. I know um, that Russell had called you when Kathy went missing and that, that you had come there that night with Jerry. I, I mean, I, I guess I'm just searching for some answers, you know? Thanks, Pete. Bye-bye. He's 85. The conversation was all over the place, except for when you mentioned Jerry's name. He repeated the whole story again and again. Thanks. And it puts the whole thing to bed. Like, right? Immediately, he's like, did, what did I say? No, I meant, yeah, yeah, no, I said what Coop said. Yep, uh-huh. We saw Easy Rider. And the, so it's like, I don't know who I'm believing, right. except these women. I love how Marilyn was like, step aside, boys. Just give me the phone. What, what does interest me and makes me a little concerned for uh, Coob's mental health <laughs> is the vagina. Oh, uh, oh. Uh, so, tell the people what happened. Oh, my God. Well, according to Jerry Coob, because there's no way in hell this actually happened. <laughs> but So he was being questioned like nobody's business. Back in the day. Back in the day. Because he had like a close relationship that wasn't romantic. I don't know. It's a very weird situation. Guys, for, he was like, an easy rider. My God. <laughs> Oh, boy. So during one of his questions or questioning sessions or interrogation sessions, the cop, again, according to Jerry Coob, (laughs) we do not verify this information. The cop left and then came back and put Kathy's vagina wrapped in newspaper on the table. Immediately, Ryan White is like, so a picture of it? So it was a picture of her vagina? And Coob's like, no, no, no. (laughs) The actual, her actual vagina. Oh, it's so. In newspaper. On the table. No, no. The vagina was wrapped in, in newspaper. So it was, look, would look like a heart wrapped up. And he threw it on the table. 
And then it's like, so what did you do, Coob? Like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. what is happening? And then they cut to Gary Childs, and he's like, no, we don't. Mm. He was like, there was some good cop, bad cop stuff back in the day, but no, nothing like that. Not saying that good cop, bad cop, those kind of techniques weren't used in the past. Um, I think that's a little out there. Remember Creepy Skinnell? And his just like, hey, there weren't any maggots on her body, so don't worry, don't ask. Just oh. like offering this information. Yeah. Guess what? Right. Gemma's like, okay, fine. I see you're there were no maggots, <laughs> and I'm now going to become a professional maggot knower. <laughs> and she just goes and researches. So basically the 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 bad guys who are the cops um, were just like, there were, there were no maggots. And the Jean- reason this is important is because Jean said that when she saw the body, when Maskell took her to the body, there were maggots on her face. That's a very vivid image for Jean. She had to like wipe yeah. the maggots away and it was heartbreaking. So everyone is like, that's impossible. It was the winter. There was no way that maggots could even survive, which is like, okay, fine. And Gemma's like, nope, absolutely not. Gemma pulls out the almanac and finds, <laughs> again, this is the age of the internet. You can find yeah. everything, finds the temperatures. It was a pretty warm winter. This is November 7th when Sister Kathy first disappeared. 55 degrees. November 9th. 57. The line graph is going up. Yeah, it was like in the 60s. Yeah, and she learned, thanks with the corroboration of Werner Spitz. He is. He was like the guy who like did the autopsy. Yeah. Yeah. And who is uh, is an expert in all of this kind of thing. He was like, if I said there were maggots, there were maggots. Yeah. Well, the fact that there were maggots is indisputable. I said maggots, there were maggots. But anyway, it ends with Gemma on the computer being like, yeah, it was 60 degrees the whole week that she, like the week that she died. So it wasn't frozen and maggots happened. Yeah. Episode seven, there's really only like a handful, like just a couple of like one major really interesting thing that happens in this episode. Who do we meet like top of the episode? Charles Franz. Life has not been kind to this man. No. Even though he was like a, a successful dentist, but he was like a total drug addict. Thanks to who? Maskell. I was practicing dentist with a drug problem. Great dentist with a drug problem. And getting sober took about nine years. And do I blame uh, uh, Maskell? Yes, I do. Do I blame myself? Yes, I do. All we know for sure about the kind of abuse that this kid suffered was that it was severe. It was enough for him to tell his mother and for his mom to, like, march up to the school like any good mom would. Yeah. And demand some sort of response, at least. Yeah. And nothing happened. You know, we learned that, like, Maskell was, like, calling him out of class for, like, full days. He would, like, be up in the rectory with Maskell. Yeah. And, again, we don't we don't know if it was if he was being abused sexually. I'm assuming that he was, but I don't know. Yeah. We don't know. He doesn't say. And Maskell's introducing him to, like, drugs and alcohol at, like, what, however old he was, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Right. Father Maskell taught me how to drink and forget problems. Uh, Father Maskell taught me how to uh, take a drug if, uh... I wanted to forget about what's happening around me. The first wine I drank was out of a chalice. Okay, and he said, I had wine left over from mass. Can you take care of it for me? Because, you know, I was altruistic. That's where it has, how it all started. And it, like, messes this kid's life up. Like He, he becomes an addict. Yeah, he becomes Whether a- to numb the pain and or because he was being fed drugs and alcohol when he was a kid. Yeah. 
And so he somehow manages to like go to dental school and like, you know, he gets married, he has kids and he gets clean. Mm -hmm. You know, he gets, it took him nine years to get clean. He says, poor guy. I know. Um, But then something crazy happens. So in in 1994 with the Jane Doe Roe case, our best friends, Gina Teresa, the archdiocese comes to him saying like, Oh, Hey, uh, so this you're like, you're kind of like admitting that you're the corroboration the that they're needs. looking for. So, they, so if you were, if we were to be doing a documentary where it cut back and forth, the archdiocese would be saying to Gene, "We believe you, but we need corroboration." Without if only cor- we had this. If we didn't, without corroboration, there's nothing we can do. Then it would cut back to this guy, and they'd be like, "Hey, don't corroborate this story. We know this happened to you too, but don't corroborate it." And he doesn't know about her, right? Yeah, and he's like, "Wait, I don't want money. I don't want to be paid off. Like, just do the right thing." They're asking him, like, "What do you want to stay quiet?" And he's like, "What I would." would like to see, just do what's right. Just do what's right. We left with, with uh, you know, perhaps we'll get together again, and, and I never heard from him again. So ultimately, we see Ryan White telling Jean. We, like, in real time, he gives her this guy's story, mm-hmm. and she finds out that there was corroboration and the Archdiocese knew about it the whole time. I don't know Charles. But he is a legitimate corroboration for me. I had the letters from Richard Moy saying, you know, we can't corroborate any of this. It's all about corroboration. Corroboration, corroboration, corroboration. Have somebody else come forward who says that they know that this really happened. And they had somebody right there. And I love her reaction. And I'm just like, Gene, yes. Gene, who's now friends with Teresa because they met and I was <laughs> sobbing hysterically. So it's like, Gene, call your best friend Teresa. <laughs> yeah. Not like you need anybody because you're a strong woman. And, and you know, it's you. bittersweet because we know that they can't do anything about it because mm-hmm. the statute of limitations and that wasn't allowed by the court. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we know. We know that the archdiocese knew. Like you've pointed out in other episodes, this was before Spotlight. Yeah. And this is just a perfect example of the power of documentaries, the power of pot, true crime podcasts like Serial, of just getting eyes on these stories and people caring and let, lighting a fire under people because this happens. Paradise Lost yeah. and then West of Memphis and Serial and all these things. Like, this is important. Yeah. You have to talk about it. I mean, we, we knew that there wasn't going to be this ending like the book wasn't going to be close we knew that going in because it never is but there are some sort of wrapping up things some more details some more evidence like barbara schmidt says that her brother-in-law billy used to smoke salem cigarettes so she says twink billy twink billy yeah yeah of course sorry sorry i keep forgetting his his (laughs) formal name and so like did the police find salem cigarettes at the scene of course they did yeah so it's like that's a big thing like why did edgar edgar has no explanation for having the necklace but he like wanted people to know he was involved like they're like the, the people that are have been brought forward in this documentary there are still loose ends right and they're pretty telling and then of course we have the malecki family who Gemma and Abby were helping them. And that's another frustrating dead end. And the thing is, I I said this in the last episode, 
this is horrifying. This is the stuff of nightmares. But after every episode and then after the series, I still felt so empowered by these women who are not taking your shit. Don't <laughs> right. even try it. Who are right. who are changing lives and hopefully maybe maybe the world as cheesy as that sounds like yeah. Teresa is a lawyer, you guys like mm-hmm. she they're taking things into their own hands. They're saying, yeah, ask me your questions. Mm-hmm. They're not ashamed. They have have dealt with what they had to deal with. And they are like the real stars and superheroes of this whole thing. I'm getting like really Saturday morning about it. But I just love that. Like at the end of it, these women are amazing. Yeah. And that that that's the real takeaway, I think. I agree. I know we mentioned this last time, but I'm doing it again. Because it's, it it's our podcast. We can do whatever exactly. we want. That's the beauty of it. Exactly. If you or someone you know think might benefit from calling the National Sexual Assault Hotline, they're available 24 hours a day. 1-800-656-4673. They're awesome. Give them a call. Thanks so much for listening to our first two-parter, guys. Wow. I know. Next week. What are we doing next week? Next True Crime Tuesday. Oh, man. The woman who wasn't there. I'm going to try not to yes! scream I know, about I know, the entire... I know, I know. I love it so oh, much. Oh, my God. Um, you guys, we worked really hard to get these two episodes out on the same day, and we loved making it. If you enjoyed listening to them, we'd love it if you'd consider sharing them on your social media uh, and or writing a review for our podcast on iTunes. You guys, I read the iTunes reviews all the time. Like, I'm obsessed with checking it. Really? I love it when you guys write reviews. Aww. It really means a lot. Um, find us on the social media. We are uh, on Twitter. We're at True Crime Obsess. No ED. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Instagram, we're True Crime Obsessed Podcast. Just go to truecrimeobsessed.com and everything. It's all there. there. But we're having so much fun on Twitter. Oh, my we God. We are having the Everyone funnest on Twitter. Everyone is so excited. And you can email us at truecrimeobsessed at gmail.com. And those emails, keep, <laughs> keep them coming. coming. We are getting the best, creepiest emails, oh. you guys. I know. I love oh, it. Oh, I love it. Eggman, you're the best. Oh, my God. They involve, like, porn rentals. Oh, I love them. <laughs> keep them coming. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye.